Hello. Hello. Hi, Teresa. How's things? Excellent. How are you today? Good. Looking forward to our next podcast now, which is podcast number seven. So we're doing great here on All About Food. And today we had planned on talking about the what. And in my mind, as I was thinking through this, Teresa, I was kind of thinking this may be the hardest one, the hardest skill that we're going to talk about because... I've been involved in this field, coaching, nutrition, things like that. And everyone has a different opinion on what we should be eating. There's all these different diets out there. And so I assume that today uh, we're going to talk about all those different things and how to navigate uh, these mindsets and these diets. And perhaps I was also thinking that we could start off from the perspective of eating like a baby because that's a framework that we've been using up to now and we've just come off that from the when when module and just a little anecdote here as well I don't know if it fits in but I remember one time I was uh, this is at Christmas dinner now I was at my uncle's and we were sitting down for Christmas dinner and of course one of the things here in Ireland I'm not sure if it's the same in America we have Brussels sprouts for Christmas and so I had never had Brussels sprouts only once or twice before and my uncle said to me he just put Brussels sprouts on my table on my plate and I kind of said to him no I don't want the Brussels sprouts I I don't like them and he just turned uh, to me kind of just off the cuff and he says well you may not like them now but you're going to learn to like them and the thing was a few years later he was dead right because I actually love Brussels sprouts now And I just thought that that might be a nice way to segue into today's talk because I would have never thought that when I was younger that I could like these foods and maybe that kind of feeds into how do we learn, how do we start off with learning what foods that we need to eat, how do we start off, how does that develop into liking those foods and things of that nature. That's kind of what I was thinking anyway. Well, um the, I couldn't agree more that the what skill of eating is by far the most complicated, offers a huge number of options. And one of the reasons I think um, the popularity of dieting comes about is because it it is in a lot of ways a repeat of that childhood sense again is the all the choices are made for you. And that is might seem to be um, stressful. Uh, well, that actually is stressful. What seems to be stressful sometimes is that, that you're going to be very restrictive and you won't be able to eat anything you like. So usually diets um, are advertised as, look, you can eat pizza and desserts and all these things that you might already like that you think oh, wouldn't be allowed on a diet because, of course, in our mind – uh, what is a diet? It's like having to eat stuff that you don't like to eat and um, maybe not enough of it and all the kind of things, as I said before, that puts people into a panic. And give me one second and I'll talk about what diet means in the context of the what of eating. But I really want to revisit the part of what makes humans different was that they're able to survive and thrive and all over the world with lots of different foods that would be available. It's just that no, not all foods were available at all the time, the way that they are right now. But built into our DNA, or what makes us human, is one, we choose and learn about food differently. But two, our bodies are able to 
you know, really do well on a lot of different foods and food combinations. Um, so that's not true of other animals. So it's a lot easier to hone down on a diet that would be healthy for them. That's from their natural environment. And for us, there's all these choices that are available and the, because we learn about choices and we think about them and use our brain, modern food plays with that ability in our head. So it, we're offered things that seem to be food that would, that would, we would recognize as being um, something that we would want to have. But in reality, we're eating a lot of fake foods and food forgeries right now because they trick our brains and they also play into um, something we'll get into when we talk about the why skills of um, there's things that we automatically like that are very appealing to us that would have been very safe in nature, but very rare at the same time. And so we're um, uh, those are the food the drug-like qualities of food, the food that, you know, comfort foods and what makes you feel better and what makes pain go, you know, a lot of those things that would help us to need to seek food when food wouldn't have been available. But it's a, it, that's a funny story that you told about the mm. Brussels sprouts because yeah. there's a couple things about Brussels sprouts that are true. Is And one of them is what I just said, which is uh, Brussels sprouts are real food. So there's yeah. not a way of giving you know, giving you something that's a Brussels sprout that isn't a Brussels sprout. The second thing is basically no children like Brussels sprouts the first time because young children ha have more acute tastes of things and Brussels sprouts, they don't just um, not taste good a lot of times to young children. They smell really bad too because they are in that cabbage family with a lot of the sulfur component to it. And children are more sensitive to uh, the sulfur. So they, you know, they are much more inclined to be suspicious of that because it doesn't smell good. Um, and all vegetables have like a bitter component to them. I mean, bitterness is something that you learn to like over time with the exposure. But your uncle's right is you'll learn to like them because you're basically started off with the way we learn to like anything. You're sitting down at a meal and watching other people eat them. And there's ways that I go along with people and say, oh, well, when you're helping your children learn to like food, you should expect for food like a Brussels sprout, for example, it might take 10, 20 exposures to the food before food liking takes place. And that is just a safety mechanism built in because some of those things like that sulfury and the bitter, they're associated with plants that if a child put that in their mouth could poison them. Yeah. So the Brussels sprouts aren't poison, but they're going to have to learn that even though it tastes like it could be poison or it tastes like something that you want to just spit when you smell it or, um, you know, to a young child that watching other people eat it helps your brain be reassured that it's a safe food. It's not something you think about. It isn't like mm -hmm. little kids go, oh, they're eating it, so it must be it must be good. It's just built into the way that we learn about food over all these periods of years by watching. And the other thing is that um, children would have learned about food without ever having to been exposed to it is that you'd have been a lot more inclined to like Brussels sprouts – 
if you you um, as a child, if um, your mother ate them a lot while you were pregnant or nursing, because then the flavors have already been your brain already recognizes yeah. them. Teresa, just so, before I get into that, we this would be good to actually talk a little bit about the framework or the structure here because I think you're going into it, but I just want to be clear. Now, we talked a little bit about this, I think it was in Food Part 2, but what I want to ask is we have been, especially in the when as well, you have explained to us the progress of from eating like a baby through being a toddler and a child and the progress of that from going from eating like a baby on demand and then intervals and then scheduled meals. In regards to the what, do you have a similar structure in terms of we are univores when we're a baby and then we start to introduce foods, you mentioned weaning. Is that something that we need to talk about today? Yeah, I think that that's really true because we talked about the when, you know, uh, just the talk right previously to this was this is the first skill a baby needs to learn. And to me, that it was the most important skill and associated with the most important hormone related to eating um, for both health or weight gain or loss. Um, and those two things are the things people are most concerned about when they say, I want to eat better. They, they either want to eat better because they want to look better and or they want to be healthier or have their family be healthier. So these are like, what are these choices? Mm -hmm. And over time, so you look and say, well, at six months, up to six months, no choices for baby. So we're univores. Choice. They're, they're yeah. univores. They only have the milk. And in nature, milk would be a little bit different from feeding to feeding, as I said, because in a lot yeah. of ways, there's uh, some things that help flavor the milk. It's still milk. Yeah. But like, if you looked at it as like, Milk is cheese, as I told you. It, like once it gets to the stomach, it's cheese. Well, cheese has somewhat different flavors. It's like you could say, "Oh, that's cheese," but not every cheese is exactly the same. And just for you know, children like that, there's these you know somewhat changes in their mother's milk that helps a baby start to learn about the foods that will be introduced, the foods that are present in that environment, and yeah. that would have been so useful in the past when you really weren't going to be exposed to a lot of foods, you know, some, yes. you know, like, uh, you, you know, if you live in Florida, then you would have uh, been, you know, things like, um, oranges and, the, yeah. you know, you, it, not that those were present, but the, you know, some, some tribes would be eat a lot of fish or a lot of it depended on where you were and what was local and seasonal yes. and 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 because food was so valuable and everybody worked together to get it and there's a culture of food you the tastes are pretty uniform because you're going to be eating a fairly what we would consider now to be a fairly limited diet and you wouldn't have even thought about it just like you looked at brussels sprouts and said yeah. what are those well you know, it's not like hunter-gatherers ate anything. They didn't eat anything. They still made choices. They just didn't make the choices we would eat. For example, they would maybe eat a lot of different kinds of insects. And yeah. we would go, ugh, you know? I mean, that's way worse than Brussels sprouts. Yeah. But, you know, certainly there would be diets that would need that as a protein source if there wasn't other ones around. And that then becomes very delicious to them because... They know that, uh, you know, everyone's eating it and it 
fulfills needs. And, you know, I can't even imagine it. But that's because my brain is responsible for imaginings. So we would imagine um, those things. But the point that we're starting with is that we're already primed to learn how to like a huge variety of things that might be food. Mm -hmm. So so even though we are primed to be able to do that, that would have never happened. But it is happening now. So now there's a whole great deal of foods um, available, but when you, here's the trick, like Mm -hmm. it just looks like there's a lot of foods available. I I, I touched on this before is that the the food looks so different, but it is still mostly corn. It's unbelievable. So it's mostly one starter, you know, that the food isn't, it's just disguised and flavored with chemicals to be different. Mm -hmm. So in nature, looking different and tasting different, would have meant that that it actually was different. Yeah. So now, visually, visually, then, if we looked back at our hunter gatherers, we visually look at their diet and we think they're only eating a very limited diet. But that's just what our eyes see. But then, when the food actually, when they actually eat the food, it's a varied diet because they're getting all of these different nutrients, micronutrients that are available in the natural world. Is that kind of the idea? Yes, absolutely. So, for example. Like just a saying is that would have been important part of our the diet would be um, uh, insects of a variety yes. of kinds. Well, we don't eat insects. They look like insects. We actually do eat insects and pay a huge amount of money for them. But as long as they come from the water, we're happy to eat them. So a shrimp is really just sort of a big <laughs> insect yeah. and a lot things like that and we were like oh my god that's my favorite food but it we would not want to eat something like that if it was crawling around on the floor but as long as it's swimming in the ocean we like it again that's an example of we like what other people are eating but you know one insect isn't necessarily the same as another insect and these were considered delicacies um uh, in certain cultures at certain times after lots of foods were available. But those are all the culture of food. And it's so complicated. And if I keep talking about this, it's worth a whole yeah. book about yes. the culture yes. of food. But the principle of it is that in nature, even with limited choices, it was provided for that it would take us years to learn about what to eat to be able to eat on your own, to make your own choices without having adults supervise or control your food choices. Yes. Well, now it the, there's this falseness is that there's an appearance of a wide variety of food and an appearance that we're choosing when actually the food was already chosen for us to a large extent because – the parent is sort of the marketers and the food providers. That doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means it gives you the illusion that you're that you learned things that you haven't actually learned yet. And that at the bottom of it is there's a great deal of um, it makes it easier for people to choose their foods if none of the food actually looks like food anymore. So we're far removed from food in its most natural state. And we even changed the name of it. So we would like call um, pig pork. I mean, chicken is one of the, cow is beef. and uh, But uh, many things have a different name and a different appearance. So it was interesting that you said like a Brussels sprout because mm. it's really difficult to make a Brussels sprout not recognizable as a Brussels sprout. 
because, you know, um, you can't, uh, but, but when we start with a lot of these grain based products, they're sort of a porridge thing where we would have just had porridge, like a bland tasting bland, not yucky, just very bland, not hedonic, you know, dumped into a bowl with a big spoon splat, you know, with no sugar and you nothing to make it more appetizing. It's very difficult to overeat that. So even when we introduced agriculture as this, we didn't have all these choices. Now things are boxed up and with lots of different colors, lots of things that would appeal to us with labels that tell us what's in the food, because the labels we trust more than we would trust our eyes. But you can't trust your eyes because the food doesn't look anything like what it started as anyway. Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask the big question then, and maybe it's not the time, but I know there's a lot of people out there that have questions about either weight loss or wellness or both. And maybe the same, the diet, a diet can cater for both. But just let's talk about weight loss for a second, Teresa. In terms of the weight loss diets, we have all these different diets, calorie restriction, high carb, low carb, keto, the list goes on. How do we begin to even think about what we should be eating if one of our goals is is using weight, as you would call it? Weight loss is the normal term. Right. I, and I look at weight, no matter what people come and tell me about it, human nature means we put, a, you know, We'd like to think we care about what's going to happen in the future, but it's very hard for our brain to want to do that. It's much more concerned about to think about what's happening right now at this moment. So people are definitely concerned about their health, but it tends to be secondary to weight loss and also follow the sense, well, if I lost weight, I'd be healthier. So I'd be killing two birds with one stone anyway. Um, The challenge to that is, as I said, is it's very likely that one of the reasons that we put on weight is because of we are unhealthy and the inflammation that underlies, you know, that this sort of low level chronic lack of wellness is also uh, that the um, excessive fatness is just a symptom of that. Another, uh, another symptom, just uh, as in any um, health uh, issue would have a symptom. So the I think that it's useful to look at diets and the history of dieting and even to talk about the diets that are popular right now because it helps us put food in a framework that at least is a starting point for us right now. Mm-hmm. So um, because nobody ever dieted. There is no reason to. Very few people ever became overweight. Their appetite mechanism worked for a number of reasons. As I said, there's a lot of skills of eating and things like that. But this what now, um, the, the, uh, these choices and what we choose, we really associate those with um, diets. So, and we, when we say diet in this sense, I mean like a way to lose weight because yeah. you think you're too fat, okay, or your doctor says you're too fat, or uh, what, whatever reason is, is this excessive fatness. So, Starting off, we have to understand that what is excessive fatness? It means if you're going to say you eat too much and do too little so that the solution, the first dieting solution was eat less, exercise more. So does that work? Yes. But it's almost impossible to do depending on how you go about it 
for long-term maintenance, which is why you see when people do set diet goals and lose them and get to the weight that they want to be, that in a very short time without strict adherence and restriction and feeling hungry, you know, all of these things, then they quickly regain the weight mm-hmm. and often put on even more weight because, as I said, this is controlled much more by your hormones. So what is actually happening with um, with these decisions is that we aren't restricting food in general. We're trying to restrict fuel. So fuel is why we started talking about calories because it is the fuel that run things. It's not the building blocks to make things. So food needs to provide both of those. And we do tend to get fat because we're over fueled. You can get fat from eating too many building blocks too, but that's only because whatever's left over and isn't used is converted into fuel. So, you know, eating too much of a good thing can is still going to lead to, um, in, in a number of circumstances, is going to lead to uh, having too much fuel. It's just a two-step process instead of a one-step process. So the first thing that we need to look at in looking at this history of diets is there's things that seem so obvious to our eyes, it's very hard to talk ourselves out of it. And the, the one of the main points here I want people to recognize is that we tend to think of the way that the food is outside of us turns immediately to the food that's inside of us. And the most important food as far as that's are concerned is fats because fats have the most calories. We say if you eat fat, it is fat. Like that the fat that you eat is the same that's the fat on your body. Or, you know, they have like the sayings, through the lips to the hips, you know, like it, you know, what you eat goes right on your body. And that is not how our bodies work. Everything's broken down, repurposed, reformatted, and fat is a way of storing extra fuel. So everything is all broken down through the digestive system and hormones decide how it's to be used. And this is going to come in because we're going to look at how did we go from the initial diets, which were the lowest fat possible, into now the most modern diet that's coming out right now, the keto diet, which is the highest fat possible. You know, is are they good, bad, weight loss? They, they, you can use this framework to just sort of see why we're having problems. Because yeah. when we try and make it too simple, the body actually already knows. That's why my way is you need to work with your biology and mm. your hormones mm. and understand. So when we talked about when, yeah. if you don't have periods of time in between eating, your insulin, which is locks up your fat stores and is a fat storage hormone, is always going to be present. And if you have insulin present, it's very difficult to um, burn fat. So you become a sugar burner because you always have insulin on board. So this next talk, which is still about what of eating, the most important hormone is still insulin. But we're looking now at certain foods make you have a lot of insulin and other foods make you have a little insulin. So combined with its dropping down over time, which was the when of eating, if it's very low and it drops, you're going to get to zero insulin faster than if you have a very high insulin level 
and it needs to keep dropping for a long time before you can eat again. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect. Okay, then, so yes, go ahead. We have, go ahead. We're looking at it two ways, right? So before they said, if you have insulin there, <clears throat> you're not going to be able to use your fat very easily. You're not going to be able to release it so it can be burned. And today what we're going to say is if you make choices that make your insulin go very, very high, it's going to take a long time before you can get to the next time to eat. And that is compounded by the fact that if you have a high insulin level, you'll be hungry. So at the very same time, while you're having to wait a longer time, you're hungrier than you would have been because your cells are not, don't have what they need. So they are saying, go eat sugar, go eat sugar, go eat sugar, as I said before with the when. So we can help the when by making better choices with the what. Mm. Okay? Yeah. So let's look at something that, you know, but uh, people tend to listen to what they're from. You know, I want to know more about this so they already know. So everybody kind of knows what that basic diet of, you know, look at the calories. Less calories, more exercise. That's, you know, a way to lose weight. It's a... It certainly is because calories are a measurement of fuel, mm. but people feel hungry on a diet. So the, what we did was in the laboratory, we looked at these groups of food that we call the macronutrients, all right, that we yeah. think of in terms of big groups. And the macronutrients are carbohydrates and proteins and fat. Now, if you take a real food, they tend to have a combination of those things, but in different amounts. So we would say that um, high carbohydrate foods, it, it's not a matter of looking at high carbohydrate foods. It's your eyes make the first decision. So if you look at a pile of food that you weigh that because carbohydrates have four calories per gram. This is not a matter of needing to know these numbers. It's just comparing them. And so do protein. And then fat has nine calories per gram. So fat is more than twice as fattening. On top of that is carbohydrate, which means hydrate means water loving. It tends to be bulkier anyway. So the calories of food that the that are, when you look at the label, then you would get much more food for the same amount of calories than if you looked at a protein source, which is often meat, like which would also have fat in it. So the fat makes the calories go up and you go, oh my God, I could eat a big, huge pile of popcorn, which is all carbohydrate and just a tiny amount of butter. Yeah. Okay. And then then you go, is like, well, look at popcorn. It's low calorie. And I'm like, well, unless you put butter on it. And because the popcorn is so low calorie and we put the butter on it, then you put more butter than you would have on a smaller amount anyway. So the reason that you're eating it and it seems like that is that it's more, it's more volume. So we say, well, we need that volume to feel full. And that's where we get into this satisfaction and satiation. But Connor, here's the problem is, mm -hmm. remember we said that for the new baby with the when is we started off with the stomach that was relatively small and yeah. stiff, and then you would spit up. Well, adults don't have that stomach unless they have had surgery, 
which is the most common form of weight loss surgery that basically gives them a small stiff stomach as if they were a baby. So you can't take in more food because our stomachs are compliant. So it's hard to tell when you're full Mm. by your stomach because your stomach will stretch and it needs to stretch literally to the point of being painful before a lot of times you have that sense like I'm full. So we might say that we're satisfied and satisfied or satiated, you know, feeling like you're done or your body knowing I've eaten enough to last until the next mealtime, which would mean that you have to have a relative schedule. Otherwise, you will never learn satiety because you won't feel that satiety unless you have some sense of, well, when would I eat next? Right now, people like, when are they going to eat next? five minutes from now, which is why so many people will say they're thinking about what they're going to eat next, even while they're eating. So that's how disrupted the system has become. So we might have looked at quantity of food, uh, you know, to help satisfy us. And at one point there was a diet called volumetrics because it knew that people felt better if they feel like they could eat more that they don't like to look at really tiny portions of things that they feel very deprived. When we talk about the how of eating, we're going to talk a lot more about that. But if we start with the traditional diets, if you're looking just to restrict calories, all right, so you say less calories, less fuel, Mm -hmm. then those diets are going to tend to be very low in fat because fat has the most dense calories. So um, the other thing that came about this was the health and that reinforce that because we said is like a low fat diet is associated with less heart disease because we know when people have heart disease they have fat on the inside of their arteries that blocks their arteries and can cause heart attacks and strokes and high blood pressure and things like that so this was a simple way of looking at it is you if you eat fat you have fat inside your vessels that clogs them up and causes terrible diseases but that's not how it happens and restricting that is not what the problem is because what we have found out is the main problem of causing that fat inside your arteries that can cause diseases that are relatively new heart disease is you know a modern disease it didn't occur before probably you know it has a lot to do with inflammation So we eat different fats than we did before. Most of the fats that we eat now are come from vegetable seed oils like corn oil or sunflower oil or mixed vegetable oil. They're the and that's either the sort of yellow oil that you see in the bottle or because that was um, harder to store and things then we made a chemical process called hydrogenation, which made that oil be thick and uh, uh, a solid that stores and lasts for a long time. And that is uh, these fats, like the first one that came out would be like Crisco or margarine or things like that. So it looked like things we were familiar with, butter, for example, and lard, which would be traditional fats. So because these new fats that were man-made looked very much like the old fats, and in fact, no one would eat them until they looked like them because they 
margarine looked like Vaseline. No one wanted to eat margarine because it looked like Vaseline, which is gross. Mm -hmm. And people wouldn't eat it. And they, and what they learned to do was like how to make it, you know, yellow, give more of an appearance of butter. And then people would eat it. And it's really funny that margarine being one of the first like food forgeries as he went in is it, they tried like even back with Napoleon, they tried to get, you know, soldiers to eat it and they wouldn't eat it even when they (laughs) had a food available and when they first had it come out people knew that that um they were being tricked like they knew that people were trying to give them cheap margarine instead of good butter which would be you know be more costly and they were swapping them out so there were laws that they used to have to make a margarine pink so that you could absolutely tell it from butter so it couldn't look like it these are just funny stories as we went along but the point is is margarine's a great example it's not butter at all and it is um but it is a fat so as the fats in our diet started to be more and more these manufactured fats that would keep food shelf stable it would last a longer time and had a very neutral taste so the more chemicals we had to be able to add that fat was like a bland base, just like the grains that we could put any flavor on top of it that we wanted. And so our brains were like, yeah, we're good to go because we're having these delicious foods. And those foods were just a mimic of the foods that would have been in nature. And that's why I call them food forgeries because our eyes tell us a certain food, then our mouth and our brain senses, it tastes like that. It feels like that in our mouth. We feel the same amount of fullness because it stimulates a similar amount of insulin, you know, these hormones. But then when it goes to be digested, it turns out that it was a fake, like, you know, money might pass off to inexperienced people, but when you get to the bank and they look at that, they go, hey, this is not a $20 bill. This mm-hmm. is a counterfeit. And that is what happens inside of our bodies. But we're tricked up until that point. And then we get mad. I don't want to be tricked. And then people get mad, but they can't sustain it because that's really what our food supply is right now. So we just have to look is that this is the way of the world and it's a new food environment and we can make better choices as long as we know what's really there. We can just be, you know, kind of that old fashioned smart shopper, which is, you know, you're not going to trick me with margarine instead of butter. Um, And uh, then you're not going to trick me by adding in what you took away. So when we have foods that, you know, because of the processing, all the things that we would have needed as far as building blocks and things were removed and they're added back in. They're not added back in with exactly the same things. They're substitutes. And because much of our food is, you know, it fills us up and it makes up the majority of our diet and we don't have enough variety, then also foods have supplements in them. And you could take a supplement separate from your food, like vitamin pill and things, which is an attempt to get back the nutrients and building blocks that you would need that you're no longer getting from your food. But let's go back to the very beginning of this tendency of the diets, right? So it was high carbohydrate. Why is that a problem? Well, insulin is very much stimulated by the presence of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. So what is insulin going to do when you eat carbohydrate? It is going to immediately, carbohydrate breaks down to sugar in the blood. So immediately, any starch, which won't taste sweet, it doesn't start to get sweet 
until it breaks down. So it tastes like nothing. Grains and things like potatoes, they have almost, they have very little natural taste because the sugars aren't on the outside. We can't taste it anymore. It's just this bland, you know, oatmeal, just a bland taste. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's starch. But in the blood, the blood turns sweet because once that starch is broken down by digestion and it starts in our mouth, then you have lots and lots of sugar and the blood sugar starts to rise up, which is very terrible thing for the body. Very low blood sugar or very high blood sugar. Both of them are terrible and they're very tightly controlled. So the more sugar that's there, the more insulin comes out to deal with that sugar and deals with the sugar by it can, it's going to let some of the sugar into the cells because the cells run on the sugar, but they don't need that as much as we often eat. Right. And they only need it right now. Well, what do you do with the other sugar to make it safe? You store it as fat. And that is why we want to be fat burners because you just set it aside. Like you, you packed your day's worth of meals, right. In a fanny pack is you start off the day and here's going to be the things that are available to you. And because insulin tucked it aside with, uh, you know, mostly fat, there's another kind of a long-term sugar, like the starch that's inside of a animal instead of inside of a plant. And that's stored in the liver, but it is just a, again, it's short-term storage. Fat is more long-term storage, but when we get to the point we're burning and using our fat as fuel, then we can save the fuel um, that is uh, we can we can allocate it so it's best used. But this is but because most of the food we eat right now, this high carbohydrate food, is going to make insulin go way up. Mm-hmm. It's going to be also hard for insulin to go way down. If you have insulin around all the time, then the cells don't open the door to let the sugar in which is makes it even worse because the cells make a telephone call instead. It's like somebody's banging on the door. Let us, you know, we, here's the sugar. We made the yeah. delivery, you know, like I use like an old Saturday night live thing. You know, it was like land shark candy gram, which is, you know, candy is a uh, uh, sugar, right? So it's like, open the door. I have something good for you. And they go, no, 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 I don't trust you. You know, you're just going to, you're just a, you know, you're just going to come in and eat me. And so then they call the police or whatever, or call the brain and say, there's just fake sugar outside that, you know, we need more food. We need more food. Make sure the delivery is actual food. So there's all this confusion that's going on because there's all this food and it's not going, it's not getting delivered to the right places. So the cells are still hungry. And that's what that situation called insulin resistance is. That is at the bottom of most of these problems that we have right now. And it comes from having high levels of insulin all the time. The insulin's not dropping down to zero as we want before, you know, we talked about before. And if the insulin is around all of this time, then the cells start to ignore it. Mm -hmm. And it is a very, very important hormone. As I said, partly it's important in how it goes down. And now we're making these choices is, how much is it going up? And, and and in what we choose to eat, that affects it. So the trends of the dieting have gone from this high-carbohydrate diet, which would make a lot of insulin, 
And so how did people lose weight? Well, they made it also very severely uh, calorie restricted. So you felt like the suffering of being on a diet. So that's this this confusion where the cells are going, feed me, feed me, feed me. And your brain is like, feed me, feed me, feed me. But you're saying, oh, you're too fat and disgusting. So you can't eat that right now. Yeah. But some Teresa, what, just explain again in regards to when we're eating a high carbohydrate diet, that makes us hungry. Why does that happen? I just remember if it fits in here, you had an example that I thought was great before where when you go to a restaurant, the first thing you'll often get is some bread. And logically, you would think, why is the restaurant giving me bread when that's going to fill me up and eat less? But you explained before that it actually makes us eat more. So maybe could you explain that? Yeah, this is great. Like they, um, you know, if you go to a regular restaurant, they give you bread for free, right? For free, yeah. And then if you go to a Mexican restaurant, they give you the chips for free, uh, the salsa to go with them. Mm. You know, both are, um, this is a mostly carbohydrate. And as soon as that starts to turn to sugar, as I said, as soon as you crunch it in your mouth or you take that bite, then the insulin starts to go up. And the insulin is a uh, storage hormone, right? So at that point is like food is available, eat it. Okay. So it really stimulates the appetite. So it shouldn't make sense, right? Because what do people say when you go to the restaurant? Don't fill up on bread. Well, you know, there are some people who would immediately get full on the bread. The people who tend to do well on a high carbohydrate diet. And there are people like that. And then they sort of self-regulate and they probably eat more over the course of the day. They don't eat very big portions. They're often sort of fidgety, active people. They don't eat side outside of mealtimes and things, but everybody wants to be those people. But they're a very small genetic percentage of the population. So you can wish and wish and wish, but you are probably not one of those people. And you know why? Because over the course of uh, evolution and nature, those people would have been dead because food just wasn't available like yeah, that. Exactly. So mainly we are much more like... Um, uh, you know, I, you know, it's funny, you know, in working in Ireland and, did, uh, counseling people there, I would go through and they, 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 um, um, you know, say, well, you know, we never had this problem and things like this. I said, well, you know, you have to understand that all the people who didn't store fat, well, they all died in the famine, mm-hmm. like their genes are literally gone. So what is left now is a lot of, you know, is much more percentage of genes of people who would be able to you know, live off their fat and survive off of it and have a tendency to be more insulin resistance. And it, it is then all you needed to do was throw the right kind of food in there. And you, you know, threw a match on a fire that was ready to go because the even the population changed genetically, because people that we would all love to be in this world of abundance, these naturally thin people who seem to eat all the time and eat carbohydrates and control their portions and things they are, they just are very, very, they're not going to develop insulin resistance very easily. They're biologically, you know, against that. And that's not a whole lot of people. We seem to have a lot more people, obviously, so we could survive that would tend to become insulin resistant. And that's what we're seeing in our population. And certain ethnic groups are much more naturally insulin resistant than others. And I really use the 
you know, you, you know, I, I often use my sumo wrestling story. The people know what a sumo wrestler is. They're Japanese and they're very, very, very fat. They squat down and it takes like 10 years to take an athletic Japanese male and make him so fat, like 400 pounds. And it's very hard work. Um, and you don't start off with someone who's fat. You start off with someone who's athletic and active because they have to be quick and strong and things like that. And then you scientifically have to put them in a secluded place with the other sumo wrestlers and work really hard to make them fat. But if you go to Polynesia, you know, like the Hawaiian Islands and like Mongolia and things like that, they're much more naturally insulin resistant than Japanese who would have evolved, you know, where it's a, it's just a different, in some ways they're similar and in some ways they're different. But one way they're different is this tendency to be insulin resistant. Well, if you're insulin resistant, you know, now that's where all the sumo wrestlers are coming from because you don't need 10 years to make them fat. You can make them really fat in 10 months with the same process because of that underlying insulin resistance. So people can go around, you know, I watch their face. And I'm like, I know I would love not to be insulin resistant too. It, it, it's what's responsible for as soon as you stop dieting, your weight just skyrockets back up again, because most of the things that we do tend to make us more insulin resistant, not less. And we're going to, as we move forward into the newer choices of diets, that's what we're really looking for. So the, now I'm going to talk about the diets just because, yeah. not because the diets are important, but, but the history of the diets kind of explain this what of eating. We went from this high carbohydrate diet, which would show, you know, which people would feel like they got more food and you really have to not what you eat, but that we demonized fats. And I'd like people to kind of keep in mind right now, what I talked about before was all fats are not the same. All fats are the same calories per weight, but they are not the same in our body. So as we move forward to be talking about fats, we need to understand that eating a lot of certain fats, these vegetables, you know, these, these synthetic fats have probably caused a lot of problems. So the research that showed that the high fat diets were associated with heart disease means that you had to look at what the studies were done and studies are never done using the more expensive ingredient or ones that you don't have control of. So butter, because it comes from all these different cows and things is not even the same. So we would never use butter. It's more expensive and it is one butter is not the same as the other butter because there's a lot of, you know, variation, whereas there's no variation in the vegetable seed oil, like the corn oil. It's all exactly the same. And if you make it hydrogenated, which makes it more uh, inflammatory, which was how we fried all the food in the restaurants and what we use to make baked goods and things like that, then those are all the same. And that's what's used in the laboratory because it's exactly the same and it's less costly. So the fats that we studied in the laboratory that showed sickness associated with them are not necessarily the same fats that we're going to be talking about in just a minute, the fats that are found in nature. So we changed from this diet, which was low, very low fat, which, you know, it's a, a amount of the day. Like if it's very low fat, what's in it? Well, 
proteins and carbohydrates. Well, the problems are in nature, most proteins in the form of meat, except for very, very, very lean meat, like chicken breasts, are, you know, come with some fat. So you can't stay very low fat if you're eating meat. So you really had um, uh, what, what happened during this time as we moved to the low carbohydrate, but we still wanted to stay low fat, is we started coming up with uh, more choices that were often synthetic of having bumping the protein way up without bumping up, you know, without having the fat that would go along with that in nature. So people did this. And when we first started doing the low carb dieting uh, for weight loss, people saw these dramatic loss in weight. And that's basically because before the manufacturers started making synthetic substitutes, then the way that it would work out in nature was naturally limiting. And additionally, what people found out was they started to lose their appetite. They didn't weren't so hungry all the time because, and that's because of the insulin and the insulin resistance. So that really worked for a lot of people. But of course, many people wouldn't go on that diet because they said, if you eat that fat that's on that and you eat all these quantities, there's no way you can have high calories and still lose weight. But over time, they had to see everybody that ever lost weight and kept it off. They were much more likely to have been on a low carbohydrate diet rather than a low calorie diet. But the emphasis during this time was often on, well, you still don't want to have a lot of fat, so let's figure out if we can do stuff with beans or whatever, you know, bring the protein content up. Well, what we knew about scientifically and started to be shown to be true was if people kept trying very desperately to keep the fat down and make the protein go up, your body can, it's like air. Your body can only use the amount of protein that it burnt, you know, basically used up in one day and replace it. It can't store protein at all. Protein can't be stored. So if you eat more protein than you need, it turns into sugar and it's stored as fat, just as extra sugar would have been. But in general, this would still work a little bit better because it wasn't instantly turned into sugar. So you didn't get a huge insulin spike. Yeah. So it's still worked a little bit better and had less food preoccupations and more compliance and less worrying about portions so people didn't feel as hungry. So this worked. Um, a variation of this was um, uh, because of some of the changes in the food, there are people who found um, you know, that they have uh, problems with uh, gluten, for example, which is uh, a common, it's a protein that is found in grains, especially wheat. And they said, okay, well, um, the people who are having problems, they took gluten out of their diet and they felt better. And then people were looking and said, oh, I feel better. And guess what else? I lost all this weight without even trying. So then people started going on a gluten-free diet mm -hmm. to lose weight. And that worked a long time ago when most of the foods that people were eating, these high carbohydrate, these bakery foods and things like that, that if you were on a gluten-free diet, you didn't have many choices. And whenever we have a diet that restricts your choices, it usually works to lose weight 
until the marketers catch up with it and start to make all these foods that are very still very high in carbohydrates and sugar, but no gluten in them. Mm -hmm. And they are synthetic. And then people go on a gluten-free diet. And instead of losing weight, they gain weight. So we we have to look at every time that as soon as we make a shift towards this diet that becomes fashionable or faddish, that immediately, if people are on it, the marketers are going to catch up and offer you more choices because that's going to appeal to the brain. So right now, the current diet that a lot of people are on and liking, you can find all these books and recipes and things, is the keto diet, which is that differs from low carb, even though it's somewhat like it is that a keto diet, you want your brain to be, you don't want to be making any blood sugar uh, because you're forcing your body to burn fat uh, when you're in ketosis and your brain can use the ketones. So theoretically, this works. It was a diet that was used for brain health for like diseases like epilepsy and things quite successfully. Um, and people are like, how can you eat all this fat? And I couldn't eat enough food because it's fat. But a keto diet can be like 90% of your calories come from fat. Well, the thing about fat is unlike carbohydrate and unlike um, protein, which can be converted into carbohydrate if you eat too much of it, is fats don't stimulate any insulin at all. So now mm. we've kind of gone full circle because we're talking about this insulin response. So how is the keto diet working right now? Well, it works by making your body never make any insulin you know, or, you know, very, very low amounts. So then if you're not making it, you don't need to wait until it goes down to zero, right? Because it's yeah. a low most of the time. And this is another one of the benefits of the keto diet is people say, well, I'm eating less, but I don't feel hungry. And the reason they don't feel hungry is because they don't have this circulating insulin. Does that make sense so far? Like, and yes. I'm not a better diet. I'm just saying it takes the guesswork out of it for people and and it takes away a lot of the suffering but yeah. people a lot of times find it boring so what happens on the keto diet is you go okay well i did really well i lost all this weight um but you know i want to have um you know, I want to splurge every now and then. And and many, many people, those ones especially who tend to be insulin resistant, find cheating even a little bit on that, you know, takes them out of ketosis and they have a hard time getting back in again. And this is a serious problem that is recognized over time by a lot of people is you run into trouble because you went on a diet, you lost a lot of weight, and then you started to cheat just a little bit and the weight came back and you part of the cheating were like, that's okay. I'll just gain like 10 pounds and then I'll go really strict back on the mm -hmm. keto again. And no matter what it was, low carb, uh, high carb, whatever the diet was, it doesn't work as well the next time when you come back around yeah. because yeah. your hormones and your body will have shifted to make sure that your fat stores are still um, uh, guarded. So we are going to get back to my Teresa point. All of this is, is that it's very hard to fight your biology. You know, in the long run, it's going to, you're, if you fight it, your biology is probably going to win or you're going to suffer a lot. So I really encourage people to go along with what has happened 
over time. Realize it might take a longer amount of time. Realize if you've gone up and down dieting and you've kind of broken your hormonal system, you might never get to be as thin as you want to be because as you start to get down to lower and lower weight, other hormones are going to come in to sap your energy, do other things to make you um, feel these things. Uh, you know, it, it, it is not so easily fixed. But if people say, so are you saying don't go on a keto diet or don't, like, I don't have any problem with any of these as long as they work for people and they understand why they're working. So if you're on keto, which would help with food preoccupations, and your person is like, I just want most of my choices taken away, which is great, yeah. then it should, it, it, what people need to get away from is when we choose these diets, which is, you know, you have to be on them, you know, basically until you die. Um, that's the, that is your, so your brain is like, it thinks of a diet as a temporary thing. But in nature, we said diet means way of life. So you find a way of life that works best for you. And yes. you don't fantasize that you're going to be this person that you're not going to be. I mean, for me, I'm short. And I just usually say it's like, it doesn't matter how much I love to play basketball and how many free throws I can shoot and put them in. I couldn't be a basketball player. I'm, you know, it or, you know, professional NBA that it's not reasonable thing to put in my, uh, I'm not going to turn out to be male and tall. Right. So, um, you, everybody, when you say there are no limitations, there are no limitations if you find out what it is about that that really appeals to you, that you can find a variation. But we all have limitations, and um, we all have lived a life. So when you've damaged your body in certain ways, we understand. Well, when you can damage it and you can have some arthritis or you could have a break and it aches, you know, we understand that traumas happen to the bodies and then we carry those with us and we compensate for them. But we don't seem to un understand is that we have damaged our bodies and traumatized it with the, these what we call diets so that our there's been a shift in our body towards protecting fat stores because our body no longer trusts us to do it. Mm -hmm. And that is much in a control of a hormone we'll talk about next time called leptin. But I think that for today, um, we need to look at uh, – um, we need to look at the, how these diets have come about, how very tricky it is. And I think that I feel like I've been kind of discouraging. So there's some things that you can do, which is you can, you can follow pretty strict advice and things like this and lose weight this way. And, but I really want to talk about another thing that I think has driven the, quote unquote, obesity epidemic. Because when we're talking about being overly fat, we're usually talking about being overly fueled. Mm -hmm. But there's another problem underneath all this is that we don't need just fuel, we need building blocks. Yes, and that's a great segue I was just going to ask in terms of weight loss. I think you've done a great job there, Teresa, of breaking down the history of weight loss diets, of letting us understand and bringing awareness to that one of these ways of eating may work well for one person 
and or a different one may work well for another person so we kind of have to test these things out one thing that's great is that with the keto diet what i what i would think that's good about that is that there's more awareness now that fat isn't necessarily the thing that or fats dietary fats are not necessarily the thing that make us fat on the inside and it's good to add those things in to test out if they're good for you with the awareness that you've got to be very careful of the different types of fats they're not all created equal so that's something i think you've covered really well so now i think that we're you, you think i think where you're going now is transitioning into building blocks and wellness we've, we've covered the weight loss perspective in regards to wellness or building blocks Teresa. I just wanted to ask, are you also going to cover the idea of looking at the different, um, this is another, basically all people have this, these other ways of eating like vegetarian, paleo, vegan. Does that fit in with thinking about it in terms of building blocks or will we be covering those types of thinking another day? Well, no, I think that that really is where we get into problems with a lot of these things. Mm. Vegetarian is, let's start with that because it's really, you know, people say, well, can you be healthy and be a vegetarian? Sure. I mean, and there's plenty of immediately what people say is, do you get enough protein? And I would say that's generally not the problem because we don't need that much protein. Yeah. The problem mm -hmm. is with vegetarians that get unhealthy is first they might lose weight or feel better because uh, one of the things that um, not having um, the protein, you know, somewhat lower protein diet is we talked about that autophagy, the eating of your own cells that we would get about by fasting yes. is that um, vegetarians, I, I often say it's like, okay, let's not say vegetarian. Let's start with vegan, which is more strict. So no animal products whatsoever. Yes. And they say, so my body doesn't need it. And I'm like, well, your body already has it. So what people don't understand is they're auto-digesting themselves. <laughs> yeah. a couple of years. So your body is breaking down itself and people are actually meat themselves as animal source. So, yes, that's so interesting. Do, you recommend, do I recommend, I'm, I am, there are people who can do well on a vegan diet, but I feel that it is extremely hard work and requires a lot of effort. And probably I don't have negative feelings towards this, but people have their reasons for being vegetarian. One of the most common ones is that they feel like it's a more humane because they they are against doing bad things to animals. But since most vegetarians eat a very high grain based diet, you know, they eat bakery food, pasta, things like this. These are monocropped foods which involve the killing of a huge amount of natural vegetation, which is plants are still living things, uh, pest control mm. being enormous, right? So you have to kill off all the insects with mm. spray, things like that too. You kill off all the rodents and things like that that could, um, uh, and again, other insects that could um, damage your supply. You don't let birds eat. You know, that many animals are killed anyway. So it doesn't prevent the killing of animals. Personally, for myself, is I'm very, uh, from an animal perspective, and someone who's been vegetarian and vegan from that perspective is, I eat less meat and I pay a lot of attention to how those animal products came about, whether it's meat or eggs or things like that. That, And I do it for two reasons. Is yeah. One, is that's humanitarian. I actually do it for three reasons. One, it 
it's humanitarian. It's a better way of going, uh, you know, avoiding what I thought was a terrible thing to do to animals. So, you know, in the circle of life, uh, when we eat these is that we trade for animals a good life and they become food for us, but we have to give them this good life and be grateful for it grateful for what we get from them, for what they give us in the circle of life. The second thing is animals that are treated humanely make a much higher quality food that has more of these building blocks that we're talking about because they're eating a natural diet and they're out in sunshine. You know, the lot more things that don't just make a happier life for them, but make a better food for us when they become food. So I don't feel like we should be taken out of whatever, um, place we have. And, and, and of course, interestingly, many of, uh, many people that come and I say, yes, these are all reasonable things, but you can do better without having to cut it out altogether. Yeah. Because I know people that are vegan and vegetarian and they have pets. Okay. And they don't, you know, you cannot feed a cat a vegetarian diet for sure. And dogs don't do well on one. They both are from the family called carnivora where they have to eat meat. Do humans have to eat meat? No, but you don't have to have a dog or a cat. So if you really are against the killing of any animals for this, then you really should not be having a pet because you have to feed your pet that food. Mm. And you should feed your pet better than you should feed yourself. None of these are to talk people out of what they want to do. I also know people that became vegetarian because they wanted to, um, that the meat was so tainted with all the hormones and things they put in. So it was known, it was a hormone disruptor. And I said, well, this really goes back to my point again, and for organic food all the way across, is this is about that cost of food, Connor, yeah. which is we keep making food cheaper and more convenient. We squeeze out the people who would have made better food for us that is somewhat more costly. So a big reason why I eat the kind of, you know, the meat, the grass-fed meat that costs three times as much is then I'm going to eat less than a third, you know, I'm going to eat as quarter as much as I would have before because yes. it's expensive, but it doesn't just do things for the animals. It does things for the people who've devoted their lives to making sure the animals have better lives and they're eating the more nourishing diet. So it doesn't just benefit me. It helps them compete in a market by saying, by valuing the quality, not just the price. Yeah. In terms so, of quality so there, in terms and of, then they'll be there to give us, you know, to yes. help provide food for us. In terms of the quality tree, so one perspective that I thought was really good that you explained either in part one or part two of this was you said that one way we can look at what to eat is look at how we're uniquely human. And you brought that back to the brain that we had and that perhaps you, you mentioned that up until now, we have been eating this heart-healthy diet, but a better way, perhaps, of thinking, think, thinking about eat, what to eat is looking at things from a brain-healthy or wellness perspective. How does that fit into this, and how does it fit into in choosing these high-quality nutrients? Okay, well, the, the interesting thing about the brain, and again, a whole book could be devoted to mm. this, is the first thing we should look at is the brain is mostly fat. It's a very fatty organ. Yeah. So it was, um, so we need to incorporate these fats into our diet that would have come about 
but the the brain needs very quality you know needs a higher quality so if you eat for your heart which people were like but a heart is just a piece of muscle okay the and what um don't let me forget to talk about the micronutrients in both the plant and the animal sources because okay. I, I believe that is driving our appetite to a certain extent but if we eat for our brain which i can't really that's going to have to be its own talk altogether yes. is that we ate for our heart because we said well we're going to not eat these fats and what we really need to to probably do is eat for the brain to make sure our brain is well nourished and also that we're eating an anti-inflammatory diet which also helps our brain be well nourished then if your brain is well nourished your heart will be well nourished as well so if we aim for the brain everything else is everything else will do just as well because yeah. the requirements for brain and again, we're human, are the highest standard of this. So that's, if we're going to be eating for any of our organs, that's the one to steer for. But I, I'm just going to say that as a statement without going into many of the specific reasons of how the brain is put together and mm -hmm. what affects it and sleep and things, because I think it does make for an interesting talk all in and of itself. But in the terms of the what of eating, yeah. It's very advanced. Let's go to that next one, which I think is really important, which is the micronutrients. Yes. So we talked mm -hmm. about macronutrients, the fats, the carbohydrates, um, the um, proteins. Fiber comes into this as well. And fiber really is misunderstood, and it has a lot to do with this satisfaction. I'll talk a little bit more about it because of the where and the how to eat is it gives us a sense that we're eating more food and it stretches it out in a solid way, which is not the same as drinking to help yourself make, make full. So people say is like, well, you know, when the diet, when there's a lot of fiber, it's a higher quantity of food without more calories in it. But there's two kinds of fiber. And we moved very much towards the fiber that we call insoluble fiber, which is basically completely indigestible and like eating a, piece of paper or something so it doesn't enter you know it just gives us a sense of bulk without any nutrient value whatsoever and then we looked oh well that makes your intestinal health better because it scrubs out the insides of your intestines and we don't need our intestines scrubbed out and we don't need insoluble fiber if we have good satiety we don't need to eat paper because there isn't anything else there what we really have needed and this will come along with the micronutrients is we needed the soluble fiber that comes in the fruits and vegetables. So in looking at the vegetarian diet, again, vegetarians typically don't eat much, many vegetables. So the people who probably are going to do best is even in the keto is you eat a lot of vegetables and you put fat on them, which makes them much more appealing. So you eat vegetables if you can put butter on them and salad when you can put, you know, you can put olive oil on them. And these natural fats, they um, they help us digest and use the micronutrients better anyway. So we benefit from them. But we have to look in terms of overall at many levels the micronutrients have been removed from food and we don't even know all the ones that we need we 
we know a lot of them and we publish that and we try and make up for them. But then, you know, a little bit of time goes by and we go, oh my gosh, we discovered a new one that is incredibly important and that is not present in any of our food anymore, but was present yeah. in natural foods. Why would this be important? Well, if micronutrient deficiencies like, you know, minerals and vitamins and things like that, if they're driving us to seek out food to make up for something that's missing, then we're going to be hungry all the time because that's what's driving our appetite. And they go, they said, oh, well, that looks like it could be, you know, something that's full of goodness for me. And instead, it, it's not. So, for example, if you needed a healthy fat and you would look, you know, if your brain said you needed butter, which would have a lot of micronutrients in it, if the cow ate grass, all of the food that the cow ate helps contribute to this. So it would be full of micronutrients that we may need, all these fat-soluble vitamins and things like that. Well, margarine, the more that you make it look like butter, then the brain goes, oh, good. Well, I need those micronutrients from butter, but then they won't be present. So they go, oh, too bad. Well, here, we'll just store it for fat for a while and forget about it and go out and look for more butter. But, you know, you get tricked over and over again. So not just our, um, because our soils are depleted and they're monocropped and things like that, everything has been directed towards selling food at a profit. And we will not be able to make that go away. You only can make different choices for yourself. But the desire to make it go away comes from something, one of the principles I've said that are so important, which is we want the world to change the environment so we won't be so tempted for what is out there. But the fact is, is we've been studied extensively and we're marketed to by what is known we will be tempted to. So you only can control your personal environment. You just waste a lot of energy trying to control the world environment because that can only go about and it won't go about until something really bad happens. That's the only way society changes. So we have to make these smaller changes at home. We'll talk more about that. You know, how do you create the environment around you so that you don't have to uh, resist temptation? You can avoid temptation. But for right now, the micronutrients, the soils being depleted, the monocropping, all of these things, you know, that the food is packaged, but ma mainly made of, you know, corn, corn that's fed to all the animals that produce meat, milk, and eggs. So the same, when everything's broken down, there's just not a lot of variety there, and there's not a lot of micronutrients. And there's a very, you know, I believe in this, is that this is also a major driver of our appetites, is a desire to get that variety and include micronutrients. And our body is very good at storing, you know, it's like, it wasn't bad for you, we'll just yeah. store it as fat. So, so we need to, you know, the way around that is to start to educate ourselves a little bit and become more interested in not just the food that you choose, try and choose real foods, but to become a bit more aware of where that food came from and what food it ate. And in the plants, that means what soil it grew in. And for the animals, it'd be like, what diet did they eat? And if they were an animal that is supposed to be a grazing animal, then they should be on grass some you know to yes. make because it's going to make the composition of their fat especially very different now the last thing i'm going to talk about with um 
animal products is there's three basic ones. There's um, meat, uh, eggs, and um, and I'm, when I'm saying meat, I'm going to say fish too. So meat and fish, okay. eggs, and milk. Okay, dairy. All right. So uh, dairy is uh, milk from a mammal, but not a human. So it's not really directed towards brain growth and development. But it is a complete food. And it is quite nourishing, and especially if the dairy comes from, you know, a grazing animal, we would be able to benefit from that. But if it's not particularly brain healthy, because it, you know, if we most of our dairy comes from cows, and uh, cows' uh, milk is designed to help make a very small baby cow grow into a great big adult cow in a short period of time. So milk supports growth and strong bones and bodies, just like the commercials used to say, but it isn't particularly great for brains because it's for cows, not for humans. And that's fine. We can work around it, but, um, brain, uh, milk, especially from animals that, um, eat, um, a wide variety of diet can have a, quite a bit of micro good micronutrients in it. And the micronutrients that we would need would be mostly in the fat. So low fat is not the way to go. The way to go is to have regular fat from animals that eat uh, grass, if that's what they're supposed to. Mm -hmm. Eggs are the same as chickens or omnivores like humans. Um, you can increase um, the egg has to build a baby brain chicken from scratch. Like if we eat chicken eggs, so it's in the yolk and the, and the chickens that are allowed to choose their own food and eat different micronutrients from their, you know, from the uh, grasses and uh, different kinds of feeds they eat. And they're out in the sunshine and they eat bugs too. And bugs have brains in them and they're complete nutrients. So the best bang for your buck you get money wise is to have really good quality eggs from chickens who are, you know, can eat bugs basically at the bottom line is that they are, um, they live in as natural environment as possible that you know where they came from. You can pick them up. There's local people doing eggs and things now. That is, I think, the most cost-effective way to get the highest quality animal-based nutrient you can. Yeah. Now we get to the last one, which is meat, which is where we have our biggest problems because that's what mostly people think of as animal products. Well, we mostly eat the thing that would be least useful for us, which is we eat mussels. That is, and we're not made of mostly muscle. So when you eat muscle, like, you know, uh, chicken breasts or thighs or um, turkey or uh, uh, steaks or um, pork chops or whatever, these are mostly like flesh, like muscle. And they have the micronutrients in them that help you build those same organs within yourself. So they're broken down. They have a certain composition. And that composition is to make new muscles. So, again, that's more towards growth and development of muscle. And, and we never ate this way because we would not have wasted so much of an animal. So animal, the nose to tail eating is basically the new Brussels sprouts, right? So you put something in front of someone, and they're like, I'm not eating that, mm -hmm. right? Because it's not a part of the animal that I would have ever eaten before. But um, we need to start doing that. And the most important thing to say is like, okay, well, there's we don't really need much flesh of animals. So mm -hmm. that can go out the window. 
we need the best fat from animals that we can get. So I usually tell people it's like a cheaper way of doing grass-fed beef is to get really lean, cheaper beef and put grass-fed butter on top of it or another oil that is a natural oil. But don't use the bad fats that are from the cows that are fattened up with, you know, hormones and antibiotics and a lot of corn products and things like that. Just get very, because it doesn't affect the muscle part. It only affects the fat. So you cut off all that fat and then you put better fat on top of it. Um, but I see people do the dumbest thing. Well, I hate to use dumb, hmm. but you know, to me, in my mind, I did it. So it's the dumbest thing is that they cut the fat off of grass yeah, um, fed beef, which was the only beneficial part of it. Or they eat the egg whites instead of the <laughs> egg yolks. And mm. then that that best part of it is uh, stripped away because it's in the fats where the important micronutrients for yes. animal products are stored. So we really want to make sure that the fat is high quality. And we want to try and start to incorporate some organ meats and things like that. Bone stocks where the, we're getting these that our bodies would need all of these different micronutrients. So we need to start incorporating them. And if people don't like them, like they don't like liver, which is probably the most important thing, which is why, you know, most predator animals will eat a liver, the, 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 the top dog, so to speak, gets yes. to liver first because there's the most things that you would need there because the liver is the detoxifying factory. So it has like an entire range, like it's like a health food store in there so it can break things down. So if you don't like liver, you like scientifically go apart, uh, you know, you know, and I talk to pregnant women about this is there's lots of ways to incorporate liver into your diet if you hate liver. And there there's lots of ways. But the easiest one probably is to take the freeze-dried liver that you can't take taste just mm-hmm. like it was a capsule. And it's, you know, to me, much better choice than most of the vitamins because so much of it is already there in it. In the liver, so, yes. The, you know, we need to look at the soil and the source of the diets and things like that. And don't expect to learn it all at once. The first thing you need to do is say is to understand why it would be important and it could drive your appetite and affect how fat you are by this and then develop an interest in your food yes. in a lot of ways, not necessarily to the point of obsession. It doesn't have to be everything you eat all the time, but that you add these things in and over time, just like the Brussels sprouts. So it was great. We started with that. <laughs> that is that they become incorporated and you can grow to love them because they become familiar. And what is familiar to us makes us much more happy and satisfied. And that understanding that there isn't anything we can do about being tricked because it's part of the bargain, like getting into a car and knowing you could be in a car accident, right? We get a lot of benefit and we have to pay a certain cost. The problem only comes by when you say you shouldn't have to pay that cost. Well, we do. So we have all these choices. And, you know, when you have people competing for your dollar, they're going to study what makes you buy things and consume them. And that is what they are going to offer so yeah. that they can stay in business. Yeah. Oh, this is brilliant, Trace. I really love talking about all this. It's so interesting as well. It just makes 
so much sense and I think that the framework that you've presented today and some of the basic principles are exactly what's going to help people get started and as you've as you said before everyone out there listen it's not about Dr. Teresa telling us exactly what to eat because that's not how the human body works anyway and we we are as she has outlined evolved to eat a wide variety of foods so we can do this but the first step is we just have to begin by understanding and getting some awareness of what food is which we've done throughout these lectures and then from there we can build our knowledge and begin to become better foragers and another thing is hopefully sometime in the future we will be able to do this talk with you Dr. Teresa about eating for brain health I think that would be an extension of today again super interesting but I think for today You've done a great job of outlining some of the starting points, and I'm very happy with that if you are. I am. So that's great, and um, until uh, our next time then, thanks so much. Brilliant, thanks. And if you've got two minutes, we'll talk about the next skill of eating, and we'll chat to you then. Okay, perfect. Thank you. All right, thank you.